appreciate uh, Steve's testimony this morning. Thank you. The significance of the word of God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Every word is true. And thus, every word is preached. That's our commitment. The significance of the reliability of the scriptures. The significance of their dependability. We talked about the, the fancy word inerrancy or infallibility. And because of the infallibility of scripture, we preach the word. And hopefully, you're reading the word. You're studying the word. The beautiful part about preaching, I, I'm going to borrow this from uh, my predecessor, Pastor Knoyer. The point of preaching is to bring every person to make a decision for or against Jesus. Something like that. It's, I butchered that, but uh, you can help coach me after we're done. The goal of preaching is to have you say yes or no to God. The goal of coming to the word of God, studying the scriptures for yourself, is saying yes or no to God. The beautiful part about preaching is that we come to inform our hearts. We all submit ourselves to the authority of the scripture. That as pastor and teacher, I am not authority. Because unless thus says the Lord, you shouldn't listen to me. But the benefit that we all have as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is enlightenment, there is a leading, there is a knowing that can be had when we use the Holy Spirit and we look into the Word of God and He informs our heart to what the truths are. This morning, we're going to begin our journey through the Gospel of Luke. We, we kind of started at the end of last year, going through the Christmas narrative. We're going to pick up our story this morning in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, moving to the end of the chapter, uh, to chapter verse 52. So there's, there's a lot of verses to cover today. One of the goals of preaching is to bring you to the place of saying yes or no to God. But, and another goal of preaching and teaching is to inform the process that you walk through on your own, to help set a path for you, help you to come to a place of, of being able to, to open the word for yourself and to let the Spirit of God have his way in your life. So when you come to a passage like this, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 52, and you're reading through or listening through the passage, well, what are you doing? What are, the, what are the, the, the strategies that you use? What are the things that you do to try to inform your heart and identify for yourself the, the things that are key, the things that are central, the things that are significant in the writer of whatever uh, gospel or whatever New Testament or Old Testament book that you're reading? What are the things that you do to help inform your heart? Ah, this is important. <laughs> this is what I need to pay attention to. But one of the things that you do is you recognize patterns of language. You come to a place of, of, of recognizing repeated words and phrases. 
And in identifying those repeated words and phrases, you're able to get a clue as to what the author has in mind. This is the central theme. This is important. Pay attention. It's the, the neon flashing lights. Listen to what is being said. This is important. All right. So did you do that as the word was read this morning? In Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, and then verses 39 to 40? What theme, what repeated words and phrases did you hear that Luke has on the forefront of his attention? He wants you to know. What was it? What did you hear as you were listening through? What is important to the gospel writer? What does he want us to know this morning? What is the purpose for writing the early parts of Jesus' life? What would you see? The law of Moses, the law of the Lord. Fantastic. Luke has in mind that Jesus was a law keeper. And the, the amazing part about this is that Jesus is just a passenger, really, in the, at least in the first two accounts of Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. Jesus is a passenger, and he is submitting himself to obedient parents. And just as a side note, this is just tangential. This isn't central to our message, but, but I want you to understand that you are not an individual in that your sin or your obedience doesn't affect anybody else around you. The message of the word from Genesis to Revelation is that you do not live in isolation. Your obedience or your disobedience affects the people around you, particularly your family. The, the, the beauty of this passage today is the willing, submissive, consistent conformity of Mary and Joseph, aligning their hearts to God's standard, helped usher in Jesus as a rule keeper. And that's important for us today. You know, when we read the Gospels, I don't know about you, but I wish there was so much more about Jesus' early life. You ever get the sense like, I wish I knew what his life was like. How was he as a kid? And we can imagine what that might have been like. And, and certainly there are apocryphal records. There are inaccurate and untrustworthy records that we find in the second and third century. For example, the Gospel of Thomas or the pseudo-Gospel of Matthew, the Arabic uh, in, uh, infancy gospel, all of which try to make a guess at what this early life of Jesus would have been like. And they are fanciful stories, let me tell you. One of which where Jesus is creating 12 sparrows on the Sabbath day and telling them to fly away. Or Jesus raising a boy to life whom he had originally cursed to death, okay? So Jesus curses this young boy who is stirring up and ruining his work of putting together some water into pools. He curses him. He withers and dies. The father comes, complains to Joseph. Joseph tells Jesus to go and to raise this little boy to life, and he does. It's all so amazing. At the age of seven, Jesus is playing with his friends. They're creating little mud pies uh, together, and he's fashioning, Jesus is fashioning little clay animals and then breathes life into them, and they, they live. Stories about Jesus and his wisdom. 
that he's brought to this teacher, Zacchaeus, who states, Woe is me! I desired to get a pupil, and I have found a teacher instead. Or Jesus, who is playing on the rooftop with his friends. Now, by the way, it's not the kind of rooftop that we think of today. The homes in the first century were flat, and so Jesus is playing with his friends on the roof. I don't know, maybe some soccer or football. It doesn't go well. One of the kids named Zeno falls to his death. Jesus goes down and raises him to life. Fanciful stories of Jesus stretching lumber to help his father in the shop to make sure that something that was cut too short is now able to work. Jesus sowing corn with his dad out in the field and Jesus' seed produces a hundredfold and he goes and feeds the poor with it. Fanciful stories that are unreliable and untrue. <laughs> Not what Luke was referring to in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have happened. That, that, not those stories. Because Luke has as his focus things that have been accomplished among us. Things that, have, that are consistent with the witness of those who followed after Jesus. Things delivered to us. So Luke provides for us a, a rare account of some snapshots of Jesus' life. Snapshot at a week, snapshot at a month, and then a snapshot at 12 years old. What does he have in mind? What is Luke's purpose? What is his desire to fill out for us an understanding of compliance of Jesus to the law of Moses? Look at this again with me, if you would. Use your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Let me just point this out again, and maybe as we're reading through, underline for yourself so you can see it in the future. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Verse 42. And they went up according to the custom. As you're reading through, identify words and phrases. As you're reading through Learn to ask yourself good questions. It's called interpretive questions. You don't have to have all the answers. That's okay. But learn to ask the right questions. In asking the right questions, God, through his Holy Spirit, and, and by continuing to read the scriptures, you will arrive at the answers that God has. Why is the law of the Lord so important? Especially at the onset of Jesus' life. Luke wants to give us this glimpse at the law-keeping Savior, Jesus Christ, who is submitting himself to the standard that's been set all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Moses in Mount Sinai. I see three purposes this morning. We're going to move through these quickly, as briefly as I can, so we can fill out our, our understanding of the significance of the law of the Lord. The first is found actually back in verse 21. That doesn't, by the way, mention the law of Moses or the law of the Lord, but 
The law is in view and is spoken about in Numbers, but I think, I think Luke is careful not to talk about the law of Moses because it goes all the way back to the beginning. And it helps us to recognize the significance of circumcision. Let me read this verse and then ask a question. It says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All right, big deal. What is the big deal about circumcision? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be circumcised? What was circumcision a sign of? I heard it. That's it. It's a sign of the covenant. That Jesus, in becoming circumcised, entered into this contract, this covenant relationship with God, confirmed that he was part of the covenant community. Now, before we move on, we need to try to define what we mean by our terms. What is, what is a covenant? We talk about marriage covenants. What is a covenant? What's, what other words would you use? A contract would be a good one. What else? An agreement. That's a, that's a good word. What else? What's that? It's, it's lifelong, okay? Especially when you're talking about marriage. I heard something else. A promise. Good. All of these words are great. Thank you. I have to turn up my hearing aid back there. I'm, I'm sorry. I, it's, you know, I always hear about getting old, and now I'm experiencing it. So, God made a contract with Israel. God made a contract with Abraham, going all the way very, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and then Genesis chapter 15, and then Genesis chapter 17. Now, what do we know about the features of the contract, that covenant that God made to Abraham? What was special about the contract or covenant that God made to Abraham? What do you know about it? It was one-sided. Fantastic, Joe. Meaning it was dependent upon God alone. God as law keeper, God as promise keeper, God alone was the one who was the single contingency of this relationship, of this promise, okay? And since God was the sole uh, person establishing this covenant, then it was an eternal covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. It was a covenant that began with Abraham and a covenant that would go on until through all of eternity it would be confirmed in Jesus Christ who in this instance was brought on the eighth day to be circumcised. Circumcision, which means to cut off. Circumcision, which was instituted before the law of Moses was ever thought of. Circumcision that was meant to establish this relationship of God with his people. Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 to 14, gives us a, a window into the significance of circumcision and this covenant relationship. Notice, it says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Do we have that verse, Larry? You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your houses or bought with your money, 
from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. I might say an irreversible covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, you should see and notice the play of words. Either there is a physical cutting off that takes place on the part of the the contract keeper or the one who is entering into this contract with God, or there is a cutting off in terms of relationship being severed away from the people of God. Significantly, it was at this event that God establishes this promised relationship with Abraham. And through this promised relationship, we see a confirmation of who Abraham was as a person who is in relationship with God, this physical outward sign that identifies him as being distinct, uh, set apart from the world and set apart to God. Jesus, as being circumcised, confirms himself to be male, which was important as we go to Romans chapter five and understand that Jesus becomes for us the new Adam. It was important for Jesus to be circumcised because as a Jew, he could be the promised seed that we find in Galatians chapter three. That to Abraham, there was a promise of a seed, but it wasn't Isaac. The seed that God was talking about was the seed of Christ that would come. We would see in Christ himself. Galatians chapter three talks about that. And Jesus is being part of the covenant community. Jesus is being set apart for God and to God as God's, as one of God's people. Significantly, we also see at this ceremony of Abraham uh, with God in forming of this, of this contract in Genesis chapter 17. Guess what God does for Abram and Sarai at, the, at this particular event? What do you suppose? Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. The significance of names. And so from that point on, on the eighth day, as we find here in verse 21, Jesus is given a name, all the male children were given names, the significance of his future mission as being one who would be Jesus, who would save from sins. It was also the eighth day, that John the Baptist was named. You see that back in Luke chapter one, verse 59, notice. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, speaking of John the Baptist. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Then verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet, this is Zechariah, and he wrote, his name is John. The significance of names. The significance of names as not only forming a sense of identity, but also purpose and mission in life. In Luke 131, Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
but significantly to Joseph, the one who was actually responsible for naming Jesus. Uh, Joseph would have been the one at the, at the ceremony. Mary would have been forbidden to come until what we see next, her purification, which would happen 33 days later. Joseph is the one who comes and will name his son. Matthew 1.21, the angel says, He, she will bring forth a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The significance of names and identifying purpose. In biblical times, names were significant. It was more than just a token of event. It was more than just a, a, a popular uh, name in culture with, with uh, sounds that, that sound very catchy. Names were significant. And names were those things that God paid special attention to. The renaming that happens of Jacob, who is deceiver, and renaming him to Israel. Of course, to move into the New Testament, Simon, whose name meant listening or hearing, and his name was changed to Peter, which means rock. Saul, whose name meant ask or question, turned to Paul, which means small or humble. The significance of names and the significance of this ceremony that, that ushered Jesus into this covenant community. Now, Jesus says part of the covenant community could deliver them as he had promised to do. We come then to verses 22 to 40, and we see the continuing uh, work of Mary and Joseph in, in bringing their son and fulfilling the standards of the law, fulfilling the law of the Lord that was written many years before. Notice verse 22. When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What was the significance of, of this ceremony? Why was fulfilling the law important in this respect? Well, by fulfilling the law here, I, I, wanna, I wanna present to you that it, it uh, helped Jesus be one who is dedicated to a life of ministry. By moving through this uh, purification ceremony for Mary, also built in was a redemption of the firstborn son and also a consecration of that son into a life of ministry before God. All built into this one event that would happen 33 days after the circumcision. So you add the seven days uh, leading up to the circumcision plus 33 days. So on day 40, which is a day of completion, little baby boys were were brought through this purification ritual. The purification for Mary would involve a sacrifice being offered at the Nicanor Gate in the court of the women. This was a result of the, the blood that happened during childbearing and the, the helping to, um, to cleanse her through this uh, sacrificial ritual. It was also a redemption of the firstborn son, which, which involved uh, giving of five shekels. We'll talk about that just in a moment. And then finally, the consecration of the firstborn son. Luke doesn't mention anything about the redemption price. 
I think he leaves out the redemption price, although certainly Mary and Joseph would have followed and conformed themselves to the law. I believe that there's a reason why Luke leaves out this, this piece of information. Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. If you remember, after the Jews were, were delivered from captivity in Egypt, the original plan that God had for every firstborn son is that each one of them would be consecrated to the Lord. Each one of them would be a priest to the Lord. From every tribe, Benjamin or Zebulun or uh, Manasseh or Ephraim, it didn't matter which tribe you were from, every firstborn son and every firstborn of your livestock would be consecrated to God. Notice, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then in verse 15, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord of the males that the first open the womb, excuse me, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb but all of the firstborn of my sons I redeem. The original plan of God was that every firstborn male would be consecrated to service to God as priest. But in Numbers chapter 3, we find that God changes this plan slightly, and what was originally planned for all the firstborn across the tribes was focused then on the Levites who would take their place. Notice Numbers chapter 3, verses 40 to 41. And the Lord said to Moses, Let uh, list all the firstborn males of the people of Israel, from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord. Instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. God decided it was best and helpful for the people to have a tribe who was focused, the Levites, uh, to, to act as priests on behalf of the people. No, but no doubt, Joseph and Mary would have paid this redemption price. This price that was a token of help to the Levites to help kind of fund their, their ministry endeavors. But Jesus, not only was his life going to be consecrated to God, but Jesus himself would become priest. Even though he was from the tribe of Judah, going all the way back to the original plan of God, now he stands as high priest for us, not having come from the tribe of Levi, but working back to the original plan. This is, I believe, what it was in the grand scheme of God in, in helping us see his master plan. Jesus, as one who stepped through the law, fulfilling the law, consecrating his life, dedicating it to God. We see, we see this testimony in verses 25 to 38 of these dear, devout, religious, committed, faithful individuals who were in the temple, one named Simeon and one named Anna. We find a little about them as we read through this narrative. We see in verse 25 that Simeon was devout and righteous, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We find in verse 36 that there was a prophetess named Anna 
a daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Verse 27, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Devotion to God, waiting for the consolation of Israel, hoping for Messiah to come. And here he was. As Mary and Joseph bring him in fulfillment of the law, they see him. He's here. Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, we see that in verse uh, 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for, your, for my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here he is. The confirmation of all that had been promised, the dedication of this young boy into ministry, fulfilling the law, consecrating him as, as a one whose life was dedicated to service to God. And now Jesus is dedicated to God, and the course of his life is set. But it would not be an easy one. It would not be an easy course of life. Notice in verse 34 and 35, Simeon blesses them and says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed. His ministry would not be an easy one. But it was necessary in order for him to redeem Israel, as Anna uh, um, alludes to at the very end, waiting for the redemption of Israel. Jesus would come to redeem a people to himself. Summary of all that happened by Mary and Joseph on that 40th day of Jesus' life is found in verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own, to their town of Nazareth. They had accomplished everything that God had subscribed through the law of Moses. Jesus had fulfilled it. Then finally we come to verses 41 to 52. And we see that by fulfilling the law, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. Notice 41 and 42 says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Again, they're following the custom that had been set forth by the law. They did every year what God had prescribed for them to do. Every year, they were, the males were to take uh, three different pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16, 16 tells us about this when it says, Three times a year, all of your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And here Jesus is, as a 12-year-old with his family, celebrating the Passover, this week-long celebration in, in Jerusalem. And the lights are coming on for Jesus. Uh, the amazing 
packaging that Luke does helps us to come to a place of recognizing the humanity of Jesus in growing in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. Notice verse 40. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Sandwiched by verse 52, which says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Jesus and his family were celebrating the Passover. And as you know the story, Mary and Joseph thought Jesus was with the rest of the company, and they started making their way back to Nazareth. But after about a a day's journey, they realized, little baby Jesus or little boy Jesus who's now 12 years old is not here. What is going on? So they go back to Jerusalem to try to find him. We pick up the, the confrontation of Mary to Jesus down in verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus is coming to a place of recognizing the fullness of the reality of who he was. The picture was finally complete. The significance of Jesus coming to terms with uh, the, the coming Messiah at age 12 was significant because age 13 is bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah, which means son of the covenant or son of the law. Jesus then would be accountable to the law at age 13, but he's already quite aware of who he is, who his father is, what his mission is. He recognizes that he is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament passages. His heart has been fixed on learning, on knowing, on discovering, and here he is having this unprecedented opportunity to talk with the brightest religious minds in all of Israel here in Jerusalem, and he's capitalizing on every moment. And when asked the question, Jesus humbly responds, I'm about my father's business. I'm in my father's house. You you should have looked for me here first. Jesus understood the mission that God had set him on, the fulfillment of promises. As a side note, I just want to to draw your attention to to this fact that that, that comes to our awareness uh, as a result of reading through larger parts of the gospel. I want to just draw your attention to the anonymity of Joseph and Mary, once Jesus is named in verse 21, now they virtually disappear from the spotlight. Notice chapter 2, verse 4, okay, where their names are featured. Verse 4 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee. Verse 5, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Verse 16, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. Verse 19, but Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her, in her heart. And from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we don't get the name of Mary and Joseph except for once in all of the remaining verses of chapter 2. Notice, chapter 2, verse 22. They brought him up to Jerusalem. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus... Verse 23, or sorry, 30, 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said. 
Verse 39, they returned into Galilee. Verse 41, now his parents went to, Jer to Jerusalem. Verse 43, his parents did not know it. Verse 48, his parents saw him. His mother said to him, your father and I have been searching for you. In verse 51, which is the, which crystallizes this point, because it stands in contrast with what we read earlier in verse 19. It says, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Rather than what we see in verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's significant. It's significant because we recognize that the gospel of Luke is not just another story. It's the story of Jesus to help bring us to the place of saying yes or no to God. So why does Luke draw our attention? Spotlight the fulfillment of Jesus as being the one who aligned his heart and life in every way in conformity with the standard that had been set by the law of Moses. Why is that so important? Well, this morning as we come to our time of communion, we're reminded of why it's so important. Because we're, we recognize the cost. The cost of a broken body the cost of spilled blood and the significance of this price that was paid so that those who are of faith can enter in. We often talk about, or maybe you've had conversations with people who talk about, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is just mean, but the God of the New Testament, wow, he's just so kind. Or you, you talk about, well, the, the, the people of the Old Testament, the, the God of the Old Testament, he's, he's just so interested in law-keeping. But the, the God of the New Testament, the, this new covenant, man, uh, he's full of grace. He's full of love and forgiveness. Well, this God of the Old Testament, he's, he's so wrathful and so judgmental and so harsh. But but, but the, the God of the New Testament is, is so loving and compassionate and, and merciful. And, and, you know, the God of the Old Testament, all he cared about was one group of people. He just cared about the Jews. But, but fortunately, you know, the God of the New Testament, he's, he's the one who, who cares about the world and, and the nations and especially the Gentiles in Russia, as we were teaching. It was uh, very similar. And I, and I want you to understand there is only one difference. We, we, don't, we don't bow the knee to a schizophrenic God. We don't bow the knee to a, to a God who changes. We, we bow the knee to a God who is faithful and consistent. A God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, so what, 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 what do we see then? Where, where is the law in the New Testament? Where is the law in the New Testament? It's in a person named Jesus. Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Where is wrath and judgment and justice and anger, holy hatred? Where is that found in the New Testament? On the cross. Where God pours out the full extent of his rage against sin. Where do we see in the, in the Old and New Testament, a love for sinners regardless of where they come. 
we see bound up in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter, chapter 12. He says, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you all the nations shall be blessed. And then in Galatians chapter 3, he says, I think in around verse 5 or 6, he says, and this is why the gospel was preached to you. The scriptures testified beforehand in the covenant. They testified that God would do it just this way. We don't serve a schizophrenic God. We serve a God who accomplished true and full righteousness so you and I wouldn't have to. That's why we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He did that so that we could enter in, so that in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So here we come. We started here, and this is where I want to finish. If preaching is meant to bring us face to face with the question of saying yes or no to God, what is your answer? What is your answer today? The beauty of the cross and the beauty of Christ fulfilling the law is that you don't have to go through the rituals of performing for God because you can't do it. As the gospel writer in James will say, James will say, he who stumbles in one point is guilty of all. You've done one thing, you're a lawbreaker. You are unworthy. It's only in Christ, in claiming his righteousness, embracing the work of God on your life that we can enter in to salvation. Have you made Jesus the true righteousness of your life? Have you embraced him by faith? Have you come to the place of making him the Lord of your life and asking for forgiveness of your sin and claiming that he alone is the way to save? He is the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father except through him. Have you come to that place? We talk about it being a free gift, but every time we come to communion, we realize it's not free. Behold the, the bread in our hand, this symbol of the broken body of Christ, that Jesus became a man, fulfilled the law in every extent. He became righteousness for you and me. And then he was broken. He was battered. He was bruised for your iniquity. It says the chastisement of, of uh, our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. Have you come to a place of recognizing that Jesus is the only way? Have you come to a place of, of placing your faith and hope in him as the only means of true righteousness? This morning, as we remember the body of Christ, the, the symbol, this is not saving in any way. We remember the work of God for us Let's remember him as we take together.
And then we hold in our hands the, the grape juice or the wine. It's a symbol of the life's blood of Christ. Again, there is nothing that saves us in taking these elements. This is not the body. This is not the blood of Christ. This is just a symbol. But it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to be beat to a bloody pulp. He needed to die for our sakes on the cross. He needed to give his life as a sacrifice for us. We find in Romans 8, 1 to 3, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. For God has done with a law weakened by the flesh couldn't, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And he died. He died for us so that his life could be transferred to you. His righteousness accredited to your account, his life given to you so that you can live eternally, you can live spiritually, and you can live forever. This morning, as we remember the blood of Christ, let's, let's take this together and remember what he's done for us. God, we thank you this morning for the perfect Lamb of God who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That even in your infancy, you were perfect. You accomplished and fulfilled the law. You didn't come to abolish the law, but to, but to fulfill it so that we could partake in righteousness through faith. If there, if there is anyone this morning who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, may they come to saving faith today. I pray in your name. Amen.